Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting with Bruce Kelly. We are talking today with Vivek Ramaswamy, founder of Strive Asset Management. Really, really cool story here, folks. This is a, a asset management firm that has been around for, I think, less than four months. They launched, launched their first product, a U.S. Energy ETF with the ticker symbol DRLL, uh, about a week ago, and they've grown already to about $100 million or a little over $100 million, which is almost unheard of in the uh, ETF space for a for a uh, asset management firm without a track record or a history, uh, especially going up against the likes of BlackRock, uh, Vanguard, State Street, the big ones. But um, what, what's really interesting about this story is not so much the ETF, because you can find this ETF elsewhere that gives you the same exposure to U.S. energy stocks. What's interesting here is the kind of the the philosophy behind the ETF, and it's a, all about or largely about the uh, shareholder voting. And I think we're going to kind of let Vivek walk us through that. But first, I want to I want to say hi to Bruce. Bruce and I have been going solo on this podcast for the past couple of weeks, alternating shifts. But uh, we're back together, Bruce. How you doing? I am well. Professor, how are you today? Excellent, and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Vivek, how you doing? I want to say hi to you, and have you maybe share a little bit of uh, your background with us? I know this is a, a new venture for you, but you are not new to the world of running companies, and I want to let our audience know that uh, maybe to give you a little flavor of where Vivek is coming from, he's written a couple of books. One is called Woke, Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. The other one is Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and the Path Back to Excellence. Uh, with that launching pad, Vivek, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? It's a pleasure, guys. Nice to meet you. The books themselves were a part of a newer phase of my career as well. Uh, if we rewind the clock back to uh, when I was in college, I studied molecular biology. I thought I was going to be a scientist. I graduated in 2007, ended up becoming a biotech investor instead, worked at a hedge fund for seven years, became a partner at the firm and uh, managed, uh, co-managed a, a you know, substantial biotech portfolio during those years. I spent three of those years in law school. I told my bosses in New York City I was going to leave and take a break for three years and study law and political philosophy, which I'd never really scratched an itch that I had to, to do that as a science guy. And they said, mm -hmm. actually, keep your job and go ahead and do that. So I did that at the same time from 2010 to 2013. I uh, then came back to my hedge fund job without law school. So I had some free time on my hands. So I did a very short-lived stint in stand-up comedy in New York City on the side. That was right. uh, humbling. Uh, and then <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that humbling experience led me to, to actually the doorstep of, uh, it was a long story of how it happened, but it led me to leave my job at the hedge fund and found a biotech company. And so I left and founded a biotech company called Royvent, built it as CEO for seven years. Uh, we developed a number of medicines. Five of them are FDA approved products today. And, and thankfully it's a multi-billion dollar company and, and has hopefully done some good things in the world. I uh, stepped down though as CEO in early 2021 at the start of the year to, uh, to really be unshackled and, and liberated to sort of speak my mind in a way that I probably couldn't have if I was going to be the CEO of a major company at the time critiquing st stakeholder capitalism. And that's really what led me to 
started doing more writing. So I entered a phase of my career where I did a lot of writing, <laughs> uh, wrote regularly, still do for the Wall Street Journal and other outlets, and then wrote the pair of books that you described. But I would say more recently, starting this year, I started to get an itch to not just talk about what I saw as a problem, and, and it is a problem, I think, the spread of the mix of business and politics, mm -hmm. but to actually start solving the problem through wearing my entrepreneurial hat again. And that's what led me to found Strive, the new business that, mm -hmm. uh, that I think you mentioned you wanted to talk about. Well, I didn't know about the stand-up comedy gig. That's, that's, that's definitely an interesting twist I wasn't expecting. Maybe you can throw a few, a few of your... Uh... Your zingers at us. During I, think, this I think you probably don't want them is the answer. <laughs> the short-lived career for a reason. But I had fun with it. Yeah. Well, I always have respect for people that get up there and let it all hang out on the stage. Yeah. Your website says, among other things, the mission is to restore the voices of everyday citizens in the American economy by leading companies to focus on excellence over politics. And I'm going to set the stage a little bit here by, I know one of your kind of the driving forces behind launching Strive and this singular ETF so far, but I know there are others in the pipeline. The big three ETF providers, Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock combined for over $20 trillion in assets. And that's where I know you, you get into a lot. That's a lot of shareholder voting. So this isn't about trying to influence anything through the actual product that you're you're managing here the the US energy ETF because like I said you can find that elsewhere this is about getting access to all those shareholder votes can you kind of you know fill in the blanks there on that why yeah. is that important and how does how does a little company that's less than 4 months old go up against the giants in the industry yeah, so, so it's important to take a step back and understand the problem, and then I'll tell you exactly okay. why we're doing what we're doing, which, which is different, as you said, but I think, you know, personally, I think it could be pretty important. So, so the big guys, you're right, just the top three alone manage over $20 trillion. It's close to the U.S. GDP, but here's the rub. That's not their money. It's the money of everyday citizens across this country whose money is being used to advance social and political agendas in corporate America's boardrooms that most of those everyday citizens, the owners of capital, do not actually agree with. That is a fiduciary gap. I, I think it's the defining fiduciary breach of the 21st century, using trillions of dollars of someone else's money to advance agendas that the someone else, the everyday citizen, did not want to advance with their money. That's a problem. Right. And, and so it's, 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 a, it's not just a $20 trillion problem. That's just the top three. I think it's a $60 trillion global problem. And so the, the, the problem also approached this anti-competitive issue that I kind of worried about, too, especially as it, as it pertained to the energy industry, because the energy industry was the most damaged, in my opinion, by the demands of the so-called ESG movement. You know, mm -hmm. Exxon changing its direction from producing more oil to producing less after there's three new directors the blackrock state student vanguard vote in favor of nominated by engine number one to adjust its climate change strategy in 2021 the big three firms voting for scope three emissions caps and reductions per a shareholder resolution that they voted in favor of at chevron in 2021 i mean the list goes on this is a sector that i think has been most economically tangibly damaged by the demands of the esg movement and, and it bordered, I think, even on a competitive problem that not only made the companies less successful, but contributed to an energy crisis in the United States, where 
you know, a thought experiment that I sometimes give is I, I spoke to the largest energy conference in the country or one of the largest energy conferences in the country last week, and it was oil and gas CEOs in the room. And what I told them was, look, imagine all of you get together and decide behind closed doors to cut production. And then prices spike at the pump as a result. Gas prices go up. We have a word for that in this country. We call that an antitrust violation. It's a price fixing violation. Mm. People would be going to jail if that's exactly what you did. And yet now the top shareholders of your companies are demanding that you all coordinate to behave in the same way. And somehow we celebrate that as ESG instead. So, so you've got this fiduciary breach happening on such a large scale that it presents this anti-competitive problem. And then the last piece of the problem before I get to what we're doing, but it's really important to understand is that there's even conflicts of interest that I think these asset managers have that others haven't really exposed or pointed out where the very firms like BlackRock, for example, that demand that Exxon and other firms reduce emissions and therefore reduce oil and gas production, say nothing to firms like PetroChina, which they're also invested in on the other side of the world, even as PetroChina stands to benefit from picking up the very projects that firms like Exxon are dropping. So, so in some certain sense, these asset managers are taking from their left hand and giving to the right. But the investors in their American funds that own American energy companies are, for example, left holding the bag. That's a problem. And, and so no one stepped up to solve that problem. You hear a lot about states and attorney generals and treasurers pushing back now against BlackRock. But my view is, if this is a problem that originated in the market, let's not solve it through state action. Let's solve it through the market. Vivek, let me, let me ask you a couple of questions here in the middle of this is, first of all, how do you know most investors disagree with the voting uh, policies of the big ETF providers? And how are you going to, in, in your shareholder voting in your fund, how are you going to vote in line with, or are you going to vote in line with, with uh, share, the shareholder uh, wishes? Let me make an obvious statement. There are different shareholders, different owners of cap. And I think we should stop using the word shareholders for a second because we, we accidentally conflate the owner of capital with the person who shows up as the shareholder on the register of a company, right? So I think that's mm -hmm. part of the problem is what I call the separation of ownership from ownership, right. where you know the sharehold, top shareholders of a Disney appear to be BlackRock, States, and Vanguard, but the actual owners of capital represent a much more diverse set of views. And so I think surely there are some shareholders, some owners of capital out there who would say that I want to deliver a politicized message or a social message or an environmental message with my capital. And it's, it's a free country. They're free to want that. But I think that it is true that many, if not most investors, everyday investors, everyday owners of capital want to deliver a message that tells companies to focus on exclusive their products and services and to be as successful as they possibly can be without regard to those social and political agendas. So how do we know? Look, I think there's a lot of survey data. We cited some in our one of our first press releases from the Brunswick Group, from others, that suggest that most people believe that companies should be companies by focusing on products without getting involved in politics. But whether it's most or whether it's a lot, I think the answer is that there are a lot of Americans who do not want their money used to advance social and political agendas whose money is indeed being used to advance social and political agendas by the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street. And so, you know, what, what are we doing? We want to provide an option. It's not necessarily an option that's for everyone. In, in fact, I know that it's not an option for everyone. There are truly people out there who want to deliver environmental and social and cultural messages with their capital. We respect that. Strive would not be a good home or a good manager of their capital. Mm -hmm. But 
for, for those who want to deliver a message to American companies, to corporate America, to the companies they're invested in, to mandate them with their capital to say, you got to focus exclusively on delivering excellent products and services and thereby maximize shareholder value that way rather than addressing other social or political concerns that should be left to the political process. For the people who have that belief, there isn't a mainstream option today. And that's what Strive's bringing to the table. And we did that with our first index fund, starting with the U.S. energy sector, a U.S. energy index fund, the one that you mentioned, DRLL, Drill, that delivers a really simple, different mandate to the U.S. energy sector, which is to tell oil companies to be great oil companies and natural gas companies to be great natural gas companies without asking them to be something else to tell them that you should drill more, frack more, or produce more, whatever allows you to be the most successful company over the long run, that's what you should focus on without regard to any other political or social or environmental agenda. Not because those issues aren't important, addressing global climate change or, or addressing environmental concerns, not because they aren't important, they are. I say they're so important that we need to address them through the civic process and the political process rather than letting a small handful of asset managers dictate to an entire industry how to behave. And by the way, to put a cherry on top, using other people's money to do it. So, so that's the problem we're solving is just providing an option for the people who do want to send a message to companies, for example, the U.S. energy sector, that they should focus exclusively on corporate success without other social goals. For the people who want to deliver that message, that's the option we wanted to bring to the table with for example, DRLL drill our first index fund. So, so Vivek, excuse me, this is Bruce Kelly. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. So why has ESG marketing and investing been so successful then? Well, you as a contrarian, hold on, hold on. Just slow down for a second, please. For you as a contrarian to that, someone who doesn't believe in that, why is the impetus there among the general investing public to buy these types of mutual funds and ETFs? Are they just being conned by their woke Morgan Stanley broker? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, uh, I'm very passionate about this and uh, you know, wrote an entire book about it. So probably could go on for hours. that's great. But, uh, yeah, that's but great. I'll give you, the short, give you the short version. I mean, I, I think there's a lot going on there. One of the things though, that's most obvious that I think is worth pointing out is yes, ESG investing funds have taken off, but not, not nearly as much as, is reflected in the voting behavior of the big firms. What do I mean by that? Well, if you take a look at BlackRock, I'm going to get that. So you think the number. big firms have too much power in their proxy votes, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. But let me. And be they're really not representative of the, of the investing intention. Of the shareholders themselves. Exactly. So, so, so if you just take a look at BlackRock, for example, I'm going to get the numbers here like approximately right. Okay. Sure. So, so broad okay. strokes are right, but you know right. exact numbers we could look up after the show. But I think it's something like less than five percent. It might be less. I think it's less than three percent of the capital they manage of outside clients was specifically invested in ESG linked products, right? So that was the intention of those 3% of people. Let's say the number is 3%. Those 3% of people and capital providers said that I want to specifically invest in ESG. That's a big number. So you're right, ESG has been successful. But my point's a different one. They're using 100% of the capital base to vote and to advocate for policies in corporate America that have ESG-linked mandates attached to them. So that's the disconnect I'm talking about. Less than 5%, I think less than probably 3%, went into ESG-specific investments, but 100% of the total capital base is being used to foist these climate change agendas or, or DEI agendas under corporate America. That is the disconnect. And so I think that no one has solved for that problem yet in, in broad strokes. 
you can talk about the ESG movement and, you know, a lot well, of why couldn't the investors funds. have just left the fund then? Well, I think this is the process of the market correcting itself. And so, so I think that you, you ask about why are we getting off the ground more quickly? This was a recent trend, right? BlackRock, for example, only started voting this way in 2014. I mean, sorry, 2018. In 2018, right? This is four years old. Before that, they weren't really politicizing their votes. So this is a relatively recent phenomenon. It began in 2018, 2019. This is only a few years old. And so I think people have only started to wake up to that trend a few years in. And I think at the end of the day, the way a market works is that when there's a market need, new market competitors pop up to address that need. Well, that's what you're doing. That's exactly what we're doing. So I think in a certain sense, you're seeing the market correcting for this. How, the, 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 we always ask people when they come on with their funds, how they're selling it. How Do you have a brokerage network or registered investment advisors or or or? Sub-advising funds. How do you? How do you? Because we're a trade newspaper, right? Yeah. Do you have any details about that? How, what's the nuts and bolts of the the process of getting this thing into the market in front of financial advisors and clients? Well, the first step was listing it on the New York Stock Exchange. That's what we did right. last week. Right. <laughs> the second step was making people aware of it, and and you know I think fortunately because of the fortunately we are contributing to a national conversation on these issues, right? I mean, last week I I was happy. The thing I was happiest about wasn't that we got a lot of media per se, but it was diverse. Very few people get outside of media echo chambers today. And, you know, I was both on Fox and Fox Business and on CNN and CNBC all last week. And I think that that's, that was perhaps for me the most gratifying part of our rollout last week is that we, we went beyond the echo chambers on the left or on the right to be able to say that this is an issue that rises above partisanship. So I think that where we actually started was communicating directly with the everyday owner of capital, because this is such an intermediated industry that we wanted to actually make sure the everyday citizen, the owner of capital, at least is educated about these issues. Now, on top of that, we've of course built distribution teams. Okay, we've got a, we've got a wealth distribution team with regional heads in different regions, calling upon RIAs, calling upon independent financial advisors, even calling, even beginning the relationships with the large wirehouses. We hired an institutional team. Our two co-heads of institutional came from State Street, actually, and I'm glad they came from State Street. They were very senior, uh, you know, senior leaders at State Street, and their oh, ETF. Oh, those are the business. top people in the business, obviously, right? Absolutely, and and and, and you know what they sh they told us is that at the end of the day, they felt like there was room for to do better for clients as well, and that the issue that we were focused on was really important to many of their clients too. But Strive was bringing a message to the table that no other asset manager did, and that's why we were able to attract them. You know, I, I'm, you know, we're regularly talking to folks from BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, others at State Street as well. Even folks who may have had their careers and worked there for a decade or more. But as I said, this turn, this lurch towards politicizing their voting and politicizing their shareholder advocacy, that only began in 2018. So this is a recent trend. And so I think both from a client perspective, as well as an employee perspective, we're still in the early innings where, you know, people have noticed that there's been a trend. People have noticed that that's a problem. They don't have a solution. Strive has stepped up to find the solution. And we're both telling the everyday citizen directly about, about educating them on this issue, but also working with the RIAs and with the financial advisors who manage their money through our distribution teams. And so I think the next, the next phase, after the first week of rolling out, we, we went straight to the everyday citizen. But I think it is going to be important to make sure the RIAs are educated on this. And I think part of the reason it's important for an RIA to be educated on this is that once there's an alternative choice available, right, it's a fiduciary issue that you can't ignore. Where historically asset managers compete on risk, return, and fee, what we said is actually we want to control for those variables. 
We don't want to promise a higher return or a lower return or, or, or a higher risk or lower risk. We're just offering passive exposure beta to the market through index funds. And, and by the way, if, if you look at if you look at the fees, you know, you could look at the, what those offered by BlackRock and the iShares portfolio. This is also not an area where we want to say we're different from BlackRock. The area where we want to say we're different from BlackRock is through our shareholder voting and advocacy. And that's a new parameter that every fiduciary has to take into account to say that I can't use my client's money to advance agenda I mean, that Vivek, my client disagrees with. So, so I Vivek, think that's something that we want to educate people on. Let me ask you, Vivek, I understand and I hear your point about uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street and anyone else with an ETF using uh, taking the shareholder vote over essentially, but isn't somebody investing in your fund basically taking, I mean, giving their shareholder vote to you as well? That's right. That and, and so here's the, here's the part that's, here's the thing that we're doing is the ETF, and here's what BlackRock would say, and I think there's truth to it, is that the ETF structure does not really literally allow you to give proxy voting power to mm -hmm. an individual. It doesn't work and they'd be flooded with too many proposals per year. And by the way, it's not just proxy voting. It's also shareholder advocacy because most of the power that BlackRock and State Street exercise over corporate America isn't even through their proxy votes. It's through what they call shareholder engagement, informal interactions with management teams and boards. So what we say is the thing that's missing is a diverse voice, a different mm -hmm. voice. So all the mainstream asset managers are advocating for ESG. And what we say is if you want your capital to be represented with an ESG voice in corporate America's boardrooms, then do not invest in Strive products, not because we don't like you, we but because we respect you. And we ultimately respect your decision to have your voice represented by an asset manager who is true to your intentions. But for everyone else who actually wants the voice that we're bringing to the table, it's really important that that choice exists in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. What we're going to have in the end now is diverse voices that say that you want exposure to the energy sector. Great. There's many ways to get it. You want it in a way that's adjusted control for risk return fee. That's a, that's a historical game that asset managers play. But now controlling for those variables, if you want a different voice and vote that mandates energy companies to focus on exclusively long-run profitability and long-run success, then Strive is a vehicle, Strive is providing a vehicle to deliver okay. that message. Okay, you, yeah, you obviously struck a nerve here. You wouldn't have grown to 100 million in, in a week, but you're still, I mean, how big do you have to get to, to have a real impact here? I mean, the BlackRock counterpart, ticker symbol IYE, has over $2 billion, uh, and that's just that one fund. So where, at what point does, are we years away from Strive having, having an impact or? Well, I hope or, not. I hope not. I hope, I hope to have an impact much sooner. You know, I think that, yeah, that's aspirational, but I think we can, you know, I, I think the signs are positive in, in certain respects where mm -hmm. I, I, I spoke to an energy conference last week. And one of the things I, I told you about the oil and gas industry and energy CEOs and employees in the energy industry is that they're not the employees of Twitter. What do I mean by that? Elon Musk could take over Twitter as a new shareholder, but most of the employees do not want to follow his new shareholder mandate. That's really hard to change the course of an industry when most of the employees in that industry don't want to behave the way you as a shareholder tell them to behave. Mm -hmm. the, the unique thing about people who work in the energy industry, including at the executive level and at the board level, is that most of them are hungry for a new shareholder mandate like the one we're bringing to the table. I think many of them are waiting in the wings for a new shareholder mandate. And so I think that's a big tailwind in our favor to say that we're going to be able to exercise influence, I hope, 
long before our capital base is equivalent to that of BlackRock's in the industry. Because right now, you look at the shareholder proposals that others have put up at Chevron, at, at Exxon, et cetera. The board recommended against adopting those proposals, and yet BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard still voted in favor of them. So if we're bringing a new voice to the table and we're taking off, I think what that allows executives and board members in the energy industry to do is to say that, you know what, this is where the puck is going. Yes, these guys are new, but the fact that they're taking off the way they are shows that this is where the demand is heading. And I do hope, it is a, it is a goal of ours to be bigger than BlackRock's IYE, the fund that you mentioned. That's a little over $2 billion. Well, we got over $100 million in the first week. It is our goal as a company right, for right. our energy index fund to be bigger than that. And I think that if we do achieve that goal, even by our press release earlier this week said by the end of next year, we would like to achieve that goal by the end of 2023, that would, I think, properly send shockwaves across capital markets and across the boardrooms of U.S. energy companies to say that, you know what, there's a new shareholder mandate in town. And if the new asset manager on the scene with its first index fund exceeded that of the energy index fund offered by the world's largest asset manager, we're not in ESG world anymore. We're in a post-ESG world with a post-ESG shareholder mandate. Let me ask you what what is next here. I know you have uh, other things in the filing. I talked with uh, Matt Cole at your, your operation earlier this week or last week, and he, uh, he mentioned um, you guys want to have a launch a fund about every other month for the rest of the year. Now, this is a passive fund, this first one you have out, this U.S. Energy Fund, but you have some active funds on, in the pipeline as well, right? Yeah, so because of the way the registration process works and everything else, I'm not going to talk specifically about the other funds. Uh, but what I can say at a high level about our business plan is that this is really just the beginning, and and mm -hmm. we don't we're we're not a one we don't intend to build a, strive as a one trick pony. To the contrary, we're building a what we hope is a large scale competitor to the big three asset managers, and that means that just like the big three asset managers, we're going to have to offer many kinds of products, offering both passive exposure to the market. And even in, in the future after that, actively managed products that hopefully can even, at times where we launch those actively managed products, say starting next year, even take advantage of market dislocations created by ESG-linked pressure, by social influences in the allocation of capital. That creates opportunity for someone else to possibly even generate added alpha or added opportunity. So that's something that's front of mind for us. And uh, without going into the specifics of individual products we'll be yeah. launching, Suffice to say, this is just the first step of, uh, of a broader journey. This your uh, your fund, your first fund has been kind of dubbed uh, anti ESG. I think you guys have used that language. We used it in our headline. We don't use that language, actually. Uh, OK, so. I'm, I'm, I apologize then. We used it in our headline in the story that I wrote. But um, if you're if you are and it sounds very much by this conversation and your background, and the books you wrote and everything that you, you I think it would be fair to say you're probably, if not anti-ESG, uh, not a fan of the ESG and the polit politicization of the voting and these things. How does, how do you make the case that you're not, you don't have a political agenda? Yeah, well, I think that our stated goal is to depoliticize corporate America. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, 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 I can't think of a more apolitical goal than a goal of stripping politics out of the boardroom. You know, look, it, it, I, want to, I want to separate a couple of things as well. In my book, uh, I was a critic of the ESG movement. I think that is different than Strive's mission, though. Strive's mission is to advance excellence 
as the defining value in capital markets in corporate America. And being pro-excellence isn't anti-ESG, it isn't anti-woke, it is pro-excellence. And at the end of the day, um, you know, it's funny that you say, you know, we've been, people people say the so-called anti-ESG or so-called anti-woke asset managers, some of the headlines say this, it, they would say so-called, but then put it in quotes. We've never called it that. <laughs> and the reason we've never called it that is you don't build a great enterprise on being anti-anything. You build mm -hmm. a great enterprise by standing for affirmative values of your own. And we have an affirmative vision, this idea of reviving excellence. In fact, this is in the subject heading of my next book that's coming out next month. But more importantly than my books is about Strive's own mission. It's about reviving excellence as the sole North Star for a company to determine its decisions on the basis of excellent products and services, maximize shareholder value that way, put, make that your North Star. That's our affirmative vision. And so if that agrees with someone's an ESG-linked shareholder proposal, great. We'd vote in favor of it. In certain cases, if it involves advancing some other social or political goal that doesn't align with pursuing excellence, then we'd vote against it. But, but I think it's really important to understand we're not anti-anything. We are mm -hmm. pro-excellence. I don't view that as a political agenda. I view that as a, as a revival of the essence of both American capitalism and American democracy. By separating politics from the boardroom, I think we make both companies stronger as well as our democratic process stronger too, by saying that, you know what, these questions are so important that companies have no business tilting the scales. It ought to be left to citizens to solve through the political process by separating the political process from the workings of business. And All so right. you know, depoliticizing corporate America, uh, I certainly wouldn't call that a political mission, but, uh, but to each their own in describing it. Okay. Um, wow, that's good stuff. Bruce, anything else for Vivek? Uh, no, that's all great, Vivek. I think any you know new competition is always great for the for the uh, uh, marketplace and for financial advisors. Thanks yeah. a lot, and uh, we appreciate you guys having me. And I think the financial advisors, I think, are just really it is an it, they're important audience for us because I think that's where the fiduciary rubber hits the road. Mm -hmm. They're responsible for managing money for other people, and I think we feel some sense of obligation to educate that community on what that fiduciary duty entails. It's looking after the interests of the client, including all of the interests of the client to make sure that their money isn't accidentally used to advance political agendas the client wouldn't want to advance. And so that's my message to the advisor community. Okay. And, uh, well, and we're grateful for the opportunity. Really good stuff. Vivek Ramaswamy, founder of Strive Asset Management with the brand new and very interesting fund Strive U.S. Energy ETF. Remember, the uh, what's interesting about this fund is not what you're investing in, but uh, how the shareholder uh, votes are being tallied and counted and moved. Uh, really good stuff. Can't wait to keep watching this thing. Creativity just never ends in the ETF space. Thank you very much, Vivek. All right, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. Hey, if it's Monday, it's time for another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest, Vivek Ramaswamy, the founder of uh, Strive Asset Management, who is launching a series of very interesting ETFs in the coming months. We also want to thank Angelica Hester, our producer. Of course, you can find the podcast at investmentnews.com. You can also find it on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. If you want to reach out to Jeff, uh, ping him on Twitter. He hangs out there all the time. Uh, his handle is at Benji Ryder. My handle is at BD News Guy. And stay tuned because we'll, we will be talking to you next week.